And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. My name is Shannon Riley, and I am the host of your show, and it's my pleasure to come to you every Sunday on the 8th to talk about the world's greatest playwright, William Shakespeare. Now, if you're new to this blog, I want to tell you once again, I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I do not claim to be a Shakespearean scholar. I claim to be a devotee of Shakespeare's works. I love William Shakespeare's works, and it's my pleasure to come to you every Sunday to talk about it. I've had the pleasure to direct many of his shows, and I've had the pleasure to bend in a few of them. But I'm really excited because right now I am directing a Shakespeare show, an all-female cast for the Lady Shakespeare Company in town here called Lady Shakes. And it's here in Topeka, and we're going to be doing Midsummer's Night Dream on May the 29th outside in the beautiful park air. It's spring here. It's beautiful. The weather is cool. Who doesn't want to go to a park and watch a little William Shakespeare, right? That's coming. If you're in the Topeka area, please put it on your calendar and plan to join us for Midsummer's Night Dream from Lady Shakes in Gage Park. Now, before I go further in today's show, I got to do a couple of confession things. First of all, if you've been following my blog, I've been working on trying to do all of Shakespeare's plays in the order they were written, talking about the plays as they go. And I had just finished Henry V, but in all honesty, I jumped some plays. I wanted the Henry ads to be together. So I jumped over a few plays, and some of them are great plays. What's interesting about the play we're going to talk about today, which is The Merry Wives of Windsor, is that it was obviously written during the Henriad, and it was characters borrowed from the Henriad in order to be populated into The Merry Wives of Windsor. Now, it's one of Shakespeare's most enduring comedies. It's been around a long time, of course, like all of his plays, but it is still being performed pretty regularly today, even though it's considered one of Shakespeare's weaker comedies. But it has a lot going for it. First of all, it was very popular in its time. It's the only comedy that he wrote, too, that is centered completely in England, other than the histories. Of course, all of the histories are English settings, but if you look at any of his other plays, his dramas, his comedies, they're all set somewhere else, usually in Italy. So you're going to find now a play written for English audiences taking place in England. The other startling thing about the play is it was written about basically the middle to lower class. This was unheard of. This just wasn't done. Sure, you can say Sir John Falstaff is a knight. He's upper class then, but he's also a very broke man with very little money. And he hangs out with ne'er-do-wells, lower class people. And so this is the first comedy since, well, the Middle Ages when Chaucer wrote his Canterbury Tales that really tells the story of an English middle and lower class. For that reason, Mary Wives of Windsor really stands out as something very unique. Now, as the story goes, this play is believed to have been asked for by Queen Elizabeth herself. That after seeing either Henry IV Part One or Henry IV Part Two, probably Henry IV Part One, that she so enjoyed the character of Falstaff that she asked Shakespeare herself to please write a play that shows Falstaff in love. Falstaff was an incredibly popular character. I've said this before. It was immediately a big, big hit in England for William Shakespeare and company. And Falstaff's character was quite endearing. And if the Queen of England says to you, I want to play, and I want to play about this character, chances are you're going to do it. 
story even goes that he was given 14 days to do it. Probably not the case. But there's one thing that is probably the case, and that is it's probably not performed at a theater the first time it was done. It was probably more than likely performed for the Garter Feast, celebrating the Knights of the Garter, Westminster, on April 23rd, 1597. And the reason why we think that is because A, Queen Elizabeth requested this play, and B, their main benefactor, Lord Carey, who was the Lord Chamberlain himself, was uh, inaugurated into the Knights of the Garter at that very festival that very year. So it's very likely that Shakespeare was in the middle of writing Henry IV, Part Two, when he dropped everything to pen Merry Wives of Windsor for a royal festival. What's unique about it is that he takes these characters from Henry IV, which happened in the 13th century, and transports these characters without apology to the late 1500s and in the city of Windsor outside of London. Other than the fact that you have John Falstaff, you also have characters like Shallow, Nim, and Pistol. All of these characters, some of which weren't introduced until Henry IV Part II, make their appearance in Merry Wives of Windsor without any introduction whatsoever. So that's why some scholars believe that it was done after Henry IV Part II. But the references made in the play reference certain things that would have happened prior to Henry IV Part II. For instance, one of the characters, Fenton, is supposedly used to hanging out with Body Hal, as we see in Henry IV Part I, but by Henry IV Part II, Hal was turning into a more respectable young prince. So we don't really know whether it came before or after, but certainly it would have been before Henry V. We also know that it was before Henry V because the actor who plays Falstaff was Will Kemp. Will Kemp was an amazing actor. I want to take nothing against it, but there was a clash of wills between Will Kemp and Will Shakespeare. And they break company before Henry V. So if he was in Merry Wives of Windsor playing the wonderful character Falstaff, it would have taken place before Henry V. Now, critics have pointed out this is a lesser Falstaff. He's not near as funny as he was in the other plays. He doesn't have the wit that he seems to have in abundance in Henry IV Part One and Part Two. And yes, I think it is a little bit lesser character of Falstaff, but I still think it's a charming play. It, you still have a very funny comic character in The Merry Wives of Windsor. What's also startling is it's been turned into an opera no less than 10 times. The story is so successful, so revered, that it's survived all these years and is one of the more produced of Shakespeare's plays. It was even one of the first ones to come back after the shutdown of theaters during the Restoration. The Merry Wives of Windsor continues to delight audiences today for its very naughty story, and I'm about to tell you that story. But first, how about we hear a couple of quotes? Take it away, my boy. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. Thank you, my Finn. That was a great job. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes here simply because it's not the most quotable play in Shakespeare's canon. There's a couple of expressions that we take out of this play that come right from the Merry Wives of Windsors. For instance, Mistress Quickly in Act 2, Scene 2, uses the phrase, Mary, this is the short and the long of it. Nowadays, we say the long and short of it is. So, it's a bastardization of a quote that has existed and was written for the first time by Mr. Shakespeare. But the other one that I think is even better is spoken by Pistol in Act 2, Scene 2, when Pistol says, Why then, the world's mine oyster which I, with sword, will open. Act 2, Scene 2 of Mary Wives of Windsor, the world's mine oyster. You say my oyster, but it's still a very common phrase. There's a couple of really good quotes to you from the Mary Wives of Windsor. 
So let me give you a short detail of what's happening in this play, and we're going to talk about it as I go along and some of the really interesting elements to The Merry Wives of Windsor. As I said, he picks up these characters and transports them to his own time. There's no attempt to try to hide the fact that they're in contemporary dress, running around with contemporary references of things that are happening in Shakespeare's life and in uh, the life of Londoners during the period of this play that certainly would not have been referenced in Henry IV, Part One or Two. But it starts with Justice Shallow arriving in Windsor. And he's with his cousin, Slender. Now, Shallow and Slender both come to us from Henry IV, Part Two. There's no quick introduction of these characters. The audience is just treated as if they know who they are. This is one of the weirder things about the play, because how did they know who those characters were if they hadn't already seen them in a play? But nonetheless, here they are. Anyway, Justice Shallow arrives at Windsor with his young cousin, Slender. Shallow is very angry at John Falstaff for some personal dispute, probably regarding money. Hugh Evans, who's a local schoolmaster and parson, attempts to unsuccessfully calm him down. He suggests that Slender pursue the young mistress Anne Page. After traveling to the Page house, Shallow confronts Falstaff, who confesses to his wrongdoings to poor Justice Shallow. Later at the Garter Inn, Falstaff discloses that he has resolved to pursue two wives of two very wealthy merchants, Page and Ford. When his companions Nim and Pistol refuse to help by sending a letter to each wife, he gets angry and he beats both Nim and Pistol. Nim and Pistol get angry that they were beaten over refusing to help him seduce two married women, so they decide to tell the husbands of Falstaff's plot. Falstaff goes ahead and sends these letters to these two wives, Page and Ford, but he makes sure the letters are absolutely identical, or relatively identical. And these wives meet and compare the letters when they do, they decide it's time to teach Falstaff a lesson, and they decide they're going to do it to Mistress Ford. Now, Mistress Ford and her husband are not really the best married couple. They bicker quite a bit, and it makes sense that they might believe that Mistress Ford would be easy to seduce. So, she sends a message to Falstaff saying, meet me when my husband is out shooting birds. Pistol and Nim, of course, immediately inform Ford that Falstaff intends to seduce his wife and that he will be showing up while he's out shooting birds. Ford is a very jealous man. He distrusts his wife and he seeks out to prove her infidelity. To do that, he disguises himself as a man named Master Brook and he seeks out Falstaff and declares his love for Mistress Ford. He bribes Falstaff to pursue her on his behalf. Falstaff agrees before disclosing he's already got a meeting arranged to see Mistress Ford. And this makes Ford even angrier. But as Master Brooke, he tells Falstaff, if she can be seduced by you, I should have no trouble seducing her myself. Meanwhile, Master Page has a beautiful daughter by the name of Anne. And Parson Evans has befriended Slender and seeks the love of Page's daughter Anne. Anne, meanwhile, is already secretly dating a young gentleman by the name of Fenton. And her father greatly disapproves of Fenton. He used to hang out with the unkind Prince Hal. He drank his fortune away. He seems very disreputable. And indeed, he thinks a better choice for Anne to marry is a French doctor named Keys. And he wants her to marry this French doctor so that she'll be taken care of. Her mother, on the other hand, would prefer Slender. And she, of course, really wants to marry Fenton. When Keys learns that Slender has endorsed his rival, he challenges Parson Evans to a duel. And the host of the Garter at Garter Inn decides to keep these two people from killing each other and to play a joke on them 
He gives them both a different place to meet for the duel. So they both show up the next morning to an empty field and proclaim themselves the winner and the other being a coward. Now in Act 4, when Falstaff reaches Mistress Ford's house, he begins to flirt with her. But he is interrupted when Mistress Page runs in and tells him that the men are returning and Ford is heading directly for their home. Uncertain what to do, they do the only thing they can think of and they hide Falstaff inside a large laundry basket. Now think about that for a moment. This is Falstaff. He is a big boy and he's got to fit inside a laundry basket. So whenever you do this show, find a real big basket. Now, the two wives force him into this basket and throw dirty laundry on him. That's supposedly very smelly, very rank. And they have two of their servants pick up that laundry basket, carry it out of the house, and he gets carried alongside a river where he's dumped out into the muddy bank. Falstaff is disappointed, but he still believes he can easily seduce the mistress Ford, and so he decides to go back, clean himself up, and try again the next day. Brooke returns, and again, Brooke is really Ford in disguise. And again, he tells him to continue to try to pursue Mistress Ford. Falstaff agrees that he indeed will, and Ford gives him 20 pounds to help him in his attempt to seduce Mistress Ford. He tells Brooke right away that he's going back the next morning, and so, of course, when he goes back and it starts to try to seduce her, in comes Ford again to try and stop this seduction and catch his wife in an infidelity. So, immediately, Mistress Page and Mistress Ford dress Falstaff up, this time as the fat old mother of her maid, who Mr. Ford can't stand. When he arrives and can't find Falstaff, he's quite angry. And when he finds this woman, he's even more angry because he believes she is a witch. And he starts to beat her and kick her out of her house. Falstaff says that he is a rainbow of colors from the bruises as he is forced out and angry that he has once again lost a chance to seduce one of the wives. This is when the wives decide to involve their husbands in the whole affair. And they tell their husbands that, well, yes, Falstaff has been trying to seduce us. We know about it and we've been tricking him. How about you help us in one final prank and let's involve the whole community. Find out how that happens, we get to Act 5. And I'm going to do that after this break. So stay tuned and we'll be right back with Shannon Shakespeare Shunday right after this short message. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. I'm your host, Shannon Riley, and I would love to hear from you. If you enjoy these podcasts or have an idea for a future podcast or have a question or just want to share anything, please reach out to me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to hear from anybody who would like to ask a question or would like to know something or someone who would like to share something with me. So so please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. I also want to thank 75 for letting me come on like this to talk about the different Shakespeare plays. I really am enjoying exploring them again myself. And when I sit down to do a recording, I'm usually so immersed in all of the things that I can find that I stumble over my words a little bit. So I apologize if I sometimes come off confused. 
Now, we're back in talking about the very end of The Merry Wives of Windsor. Mistress Ford, who again has been pretending she's interested in Falstaff, and by the way, I should mention that Mistress Ford, as well as Mistress Page, are often played by very dainty, pretty young women who would have no interest in an old man like Falstaff. It just shows how much Falstaff's overconfidence follows him in this play. He is a vain and very depraved man who is trying to prey on these pretty young wives. So it's hard for us to root for him. Whereas there is this gentleness to Falstaff in Henry IV, part one and two. You almost feel sad for him. You see that he is funny. He is disliked, often the butt of a joke. But he is also very caring and very loving of Henry. And so we kind of feel for him in these plays. We don't in this play. In this play, he's a cad, and he's trying to seduce these two women. And in Act 5, they decide to involve their husbands and their whole community in taking him down. Now, what Mistress Ford does is she invites Falstaff to meet her at night in Windsor Park. But they want him to disguise as Hearn the Hunter. Look this guy up. Hearn the Hunter is fascinating. It's the story of a ghost that is in Windsor Park that is actually a man who is half man, half deer, often riding a horse, but he has antlers on his head. And I find this very interesting. People don't really know if Shakespeare used a common belief or a common folklore of Windsor for this, or if it was something he just made up. Could this have been a very old story about Windsor Park that we have lost the common reference to? The earliest known reference of Hearn the Hunter is from this play, and yet it shows up again and again and again in folklore. So it could have been that they picked it up from Shakespeare, or Shakespeare was playing off of an old folktale that we no longer have. Whatever, Hearn the Hunter is a tall man with antlers. Why I think that's fascinating is this tall man with antlers that Falstaff is asked to dress as is trying to seduce two married women, making cuckolds out of their husband. The vision of cuckolds was to be men with horns on their head. So it's a very clever ploy by Shakespeare here to have Mistress Ford have the man who would cuckle her husband show up with horns on his head to meet her. Now they don't just stop there. They get a bunch of kids, including Anne, to dress up as fairies, and they're all going to hide in the park and jump out and surprise and attack Falstaff. They describe him getting grabbed, pinched, slapped, pushed around a little bit, and they all plan to scare the heck out of him. So as Falstaff dresses up as Hearn the Hunter and goes into the park to be attacked by these fairies, there's a side plan going on at the same time. Fenton has agreed that he's going to run off and marry Anne. But the two other suitors of Anne decide that they also want to take her off and marry them. So Keyes is told that Anne will be hot waiting for him wearing all green. And Slender is told that he will meet up Anne who will be wearing all white. Well, Fenton is the one who runs off with Anne and gets married to her during Act 5. And the other two men run off with boys in drag and attempt to marry them. Slender comes back having found out his boy was a boy before he went to the altar. Not so for Keys, who now finds himself married to a boy in drag. In addition to that, they all reveal themselves as not being fairies, but as being people wanting to punish Falstaff. And Falstaff takes it all with a grain of salt. He admits he was being bad. He begs forgiveness from the husbands. And Ford is reprimanded for mistrusting his wife. And Anne returns with a married Fenton. And they all agree that it's a good match. And it all ends happily. And they all return home have a good joke by the fire. It's a silly ending. It's very quick. It's very easily wrapped up. But it is a good ending. It's popular. It's light. It's funny. And the audiences would have had a huge kick out of Keys coming back and realizing he was now married to a boy. 
There's a side note that there's an attempt here on Shakespeare's part to really play up how much these two have a really bad accent. Keyes is French, and when he speaks, it's very hard to understand what he says. And when Slender speaks, well, he's Welsh, and he has a very thick Welsh accent. Even Falstaff makes fun of how he destroys the English language. Play was written very, very quickly, put up as a gift for the Queen to her knights, and it was very well received. We know when it was published. It was published in around 1604, 1603 or 1604. But it was noted even when it was published that it had played many times by many different players. So it was a very popular play in its time and continued to be popular later. There's a couple of things that I want to touch on that I think is neat about Merry Wives of Windsor. First of all, it's one of only three original stories he wrote. Now, all of his plays were based on something, a previous story or even a previous play. There were three plays that were not. We've already talked about Comedy of Errors. We've already talked about Midsummer's Night Dream. Those were the other two. This is the last truly original story written by Shakespeare. But he had some help in writing this in that he played off of a very, very old kind of pulp writing that existed at the time. Now, they were called Fabliaux. And Fabliaux started in the 13th century in France. And they were very naughty, semi-adult humor for the time. <laughs> very short stories that played to audiences of a adult nature. And they were always about very lusty people. They were about cheating wives and cheating husbands. They were naughty, mistaken identities and sneaking around people's backs so that you can be together. Very popular in France. Shakespeare would have known about these and they eventually moved to Italy. And now Shakespeare really would have cared because everything Italian was popular in the Elizabethan era. The Fablios were very naughty. Everybody was naughty in the Fablios. This is the smart thing, though, that Shakespeare does with his interpretation of these stories. Yes, we've got a very lustful and naughty Falstaff, but the rest of the characters are not that way. They are actually very funny people. And he's very smart, Shakespeare is, in not dragging the women down into the mud. No one wants to see an English woman being treated that way. So there was definitely an attempt on his part to keep the naughtiness one-sided, which is, I think, a rather brilliant idea. So why doesn't Shakespeare get down in the dirt and gutter and play out a very sexy, saucy story? Well, we think it's because, at least it's believed by scholars, and me as well, that it was the original audience it was intended for. It was intended for the Knights of the Garter, a very respectable, very high-ranking rank of knight that served Queen Elizabeth. And it was for their festival that this play was first written. And it would not have been treated well by them to see English women being bespoiled. Now, it's okay to throw mud at Falstaff. Matter of fact, they probably like that a great deal. But the honor of the English woman and the honor of the Knights of the Garter had to be respected. So Shakespeare keeps them above the fray. But going back to the themes of the play, where the themes are really love, marriage, jealousy, revenge, but also social class. The irony of the sexual innuendo and sarcasm and the stereotypical views of the classes and it plays out really strongly in this play. The lower class is represented by characters such as Bardolph and Nim and Pistol, but the upper class is represented by John Falstaff and, and Master Fenton, who once again is someone who hung around with Prince Hal and he was being naughty. And then you have the middle class. You have the middle class of Dr. Keyes and Sir Hugh Evans. Now here are two men who could become pillars of society. One a parson, one a doctor. And yet they go to meet each other 
to duel over the fate of a young girl by the name of Anne, who runs off with Fenton in the end anyway. This wonderful juxtaposition of the classes and how they interact with each other was certainly unlike any of other Shakespeare's plays. It becomes of such an original performance then, because it really sees Shakespeare using the comic talents that he was honing now in a whole new light to write in a whole new way. I can't say that I'm a massive fan of The Merry Wives of Windsor, but I do think the play is important because it really points out Shakespeare's ability to turn on a dime, to create characters and plant them in different settings. His ability to rebuild a character from the ground up is phenomenal. And he learned this in only one place, the histories. By writing the histories, he was able to learn the arc of a character. And the arc of a character is what drives all of his plays. The plays we're gonna start talking about now, next in this series, are from his most prolific period, and they are some of his greatest works. They are plays like Merchant of Venice, King Lear, and of course, Hamlet. None of those plays would have been possible without that time, that those over a decade that he spent in the histories, writing characters from the ground up, keeping them alive from multiple plays, allowed him to understand the necessity of building a rich and strong character background. So even though Falstaff was a popular character, and this wasn't really playing off Falstaff's character as well as he did in Henry IV, part one and two, it's still the most pleasant little play. Matter of fact, the original title of this play was Sir John Falstaff and the Merry Wives of Windsor. It's funny that we've taken his name off the title of this play, because he really is the driving force in it, not the women, although they stay in control of the play. And that's another thing that's really neat about Shakespeare here. The women are in control of this play. Women were played by boy actors at that time, and it's not uncommon to use them only in romantic situations, simple little situations, because they usually weren't the strongest actors in the group. Shakespeare focuses on the women in this play. The female characters drive it. And this is where his later really strong women like Portia from Merchant of Venice comes from. This ability to write for women, write in a woman's voice, and be able to put them in center places. This is ahead of any other playwright of his time. No one else was treating women in such a respect. So here is another great example of what The Merry Wives of Windsor presents to us. And finally, I want to talk about how it translates. 10 operas, ladies and gentlemen, 10 different operas in the last 400 years have been based on this play or on the character of John Falstaff himself. That's how massive that character was. Now I said at the beginning there was a war of wills between Will Kemp and Will Shakespeare, and there was. And there's no doubt that Will Kemp brought so much life and energy to Falstaff that he became an immediate popular character and it went to Kemp's head. But think about this, if it was just Will Kemp, why are we still talking about Falstaff today? So many wonderful actors have taken on this role and so many wonderful actors have made it their own. One of my favorites is Orson Welles in The, the Chimes at Midnight. What an amazing performance. We see the character Falstaff being taken on by some of the greats who have ever walked the stage or been in film. And we see them take it on because the character is so well written. It's funny to think of what might have happened if Will Kemp would have stayed. Would there have been more stories about this great John Falstaff that would come after? Kind of think there would have to be. They booed at the thought that he wasn't in Henry V when it was first announced he wasn't. So 
I kind of think the audiences would have expected to see him. Well, we don't know. But I do know I'm at the end of my show. I want to thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday once again here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. If you want to reach me, you can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. I'd love to hear from you. And next week, I'm going to go back up and pick on another play that was written during this period, probably before Henry V, as we go into some of Shakespeare's greatest works. And we're going to pick up on it with a very troubling play next week, one that's really hard sometimes to hear today, and that's Merchant of Venice. See you next time on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday and KSEF. And as always, until next time, keep it barred to the bone. <laughs>